Thanks. You need even to better. Good morning. I confess that uh, once in a while when I get up on Sunday morning, I think to myself, I'm going to intentionally outdress Dennis Cancino Jr. <laughs> so I got up this morning and I put on my dress shoes and my sport coat and Dennis is wearing a three-piece suit. <laughs> so Dennis... Putting you on notice, next week I'm wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> it is uh, so good to be back with you. I'm excited uh, to be back from Lubbock, Texas. Um, I think most people are glad to be back from Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> Lubbock's great. I was there last week, uh, preached four times, and so I joke with Patrick that uh, if I don't get it right by this point, there's there's no hope for the, for the sermon because I've done it four times in front of a large church last week. And Jessica and I are heading up on Tuesday to Washington, D.C. for all the events surrounding the uh, March for Life, and we're looking forward to doing that. We do it every year. We take a whole group with us. We're participating in some conferences and strategy sessions and whatnot, and then we'll be back uh, late Friday night. January is a weird month uh, for the pro-life movement because there's a lot of activity. You get done with the holidays, and all of a sudden, you know, the church world sorts of focus on abortion for a few weeks, and then by the time you hit Valentine's Day, it's all over again. So I honestly have mixed emotions about the Sanctity of Life Sunday concept. Uh, to memorialize the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade that legalized abortion, I think is appropriate, but it frustrates me that we have to do it, and it frustrates me that it's just one day out of the year. Because in my mind, the greatest genocide in American history should be something that the church is concerned with uh, each and every day. And that's why I'm so grateful for each and every one of you. This church has been, since Human Coalition's inception, deeply, integrally involved with our work. So not only does the church financially support Human Coalition, but many, if not most of you do, and many of you give of your time and your talents to other projects and work through volunteerism. Uh, and then you send cards and notes, and sometimes you just show up at the office with... Uh, the helping hand, and so I am deeply grateful to each and every one of you for the work that you have been doing and continue to do on behalf of Human Coalition. Patrick asked if I would give a brief update, a ministry update, before I get started this morning, so I want to do that. For those of you that don't know, Human Coalition is a pro-life ministry. We are the largest pro-life organization in the country, and we are located uh, just down the street in Plano, Texas. We have about 170 folks now on staff in some five states around the country. Uh, we just moved... <laughs> for the fourth time in seven years, and um, I would say that was fun, but I'm preaching, so I'm not allowed to lie. Uh, so we just, we're in the same building, but we uh, went from about 10,000 square feet on two floors to 18,000 square feet on one floor. So the good news is we're all together, and we have a little bit of room to grow, which is uh, nice. Uh, we all are, <laughs> we're all tired of moving desks and uh, IT and whatnot, but we're glad to be there. So if you haven't stopped in to see the new space, many of you have already been there, but I certainly invite you to do that. The most important update I can give you, of course, is uh, babies saved, because that's why we exist. Our job as Human Coalition is to find women who are high at risk to abort and give them so much love and grace and compassion and tangible help that they take that off the table, that they have their child, and that they are successful as a family. And last year, our goal was to rescue 4,000 children and by God's grace, we rescued 4,124 children in 2019. We uh, 
Praise God for each and every child. We have rescued over 15,000 children now since 2010. And to give you some sort of sense of the growth rate, in 2010, we rescued 15 children, and we rescued over 4,000 last year, so the pace continues to pick up. We joke at Human Coalition that the only thing uh, constant about our organization is change. And for those uh, who know other staff members, it can be a rather exhausting place to work because we are constantly adapting. We are the largest pro-life organization in the country, but we are one one-hundredth the size of our competitor. Planned Parenthood is a $1.7 billion organization. Human Coalition is about a $17 million organization. And so we have a substantial ways to go until we're able to save not 4,124 children a year, but about 4,000 babies a day, and that is the goal. Our mission is to make abortion unthinkable and unavailable. And so we have to be really fluid, and we have to be really adaptable because the circumstances are always changing. And we have had overt attacks from big tech this year, including Google. We faced various legal challenges. We have protesters show up at our clinic. We have all kinds of things that you might imagine uh, in our world, and so we have to change, and, and we change a lot. So in 2019, I'll just give you two major things that we did. One is that we did start a political organization called Human Coalition Action. It's a brand new organization. It is active primarily in Texas and North Carolina, but Human Coalition is now a family of organizations. There's actually four organizations in our family. But Human Coalition Action was birthed to begin to influence another sphere in our culture, and that is the political sphere. And so I'm ecstatic about the work that's been done in 2019, and we are continuing to grow the political effort in 2020. And the other major development is that we are continuing to look at how to expand the services that we provide to moms. Human Coalition is what's known as a limited medical organization, meaning we provide small amounts of medical services through our nurses and care workers and whatnot. So we provide maybe three or four services through the nurse piece, and then we provide a large amount of social work services connecting to housing, adoption agencies, drug and alcohol abuse recovery, maternity homes, physical needs. We do all that work. It has been our desire for years to expand the medical piece, and so we are going to be... Um, doing that in 2020, and I'm, I'm probably more excited now than I have been in a long time, although I sort of function in a steady state of excitement, but I'm super excited about what's going to happen in 2020. Uh, we just hired uh, an extraordinary uh, medical administrator, and she is coming in in February to lead our medical services. She's from Venezuela originally. She herself, as an MD, delivered over 300 children, but when she came to the States, moved into clinic administration and medical billing, and by the end of 2020, our goal is to increase the number of medical services that we provide for women through our clinics and thus provide different on-ramps for women who are at risk to abort to come in through our network of care. So we are transforming ourselves once again. And with the addition of the political piece and an increased focus on medical care, um, I'm super excited about what the Lord's going to do in 2020. We can't do it without you, so let me just close that update by saying again how grateful I am to each and every one of you, not only for allowing me this platform, but for the tangible work that so many of you have done and continue to do as we, as we work together to make abortion unthinkable and unavailable. When I was about seven years old, my parents took my brother and I to a county fair, 
And at that county fair, they had those, you know, uh, carnival games where you waste a lot of money and get stupid prizes. And they had a carnival game where you could throw a ping pong ball uh, in a collection of fish bowls and win whatever is in the fish bowl. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or you just shoot the... Okay. So I didn't know what I was shooting ping pong balls for because I couldn't quite... I was very short. I couldn't see into the fish bowls to see what was in there. But I shockingly won... One of my ping pong balls landed in a fishbowl, and I won a fish, oddly enough. And so at seven or eight years old, I brought my fish home, and I think I probably killed it within two weeks by accident, but that started a lifelong fascination with fish and aquariums, which I think, given my surname, you know, is providential. So, so I ended up having aquariums, and I've had aquariums through most of my life. Now, when I say that I'm, I'm in the hobby, the problem is I'm not particularly good at the hobby. I have, unfortunately, killed uh, dozens and dozens of fish accidentally in my quest to have a beautiful aquarium. There was one time when our family lived back in Pittsburgh that I had an infestation of snails, and a few snails are okay, but a lot of snails is not okay, and so you buy this chemical that kills the snails. And <laughs> I had the bright idea to open the bottle over the tank, and the, the lid snapped as I was opening it, and so I dosed uh, the water with about 10 times the chemicals that I was supposed to put in it. So the good news is I woke up the next day, and all the snails were dead, and everything else was dead. So I <laughs> killed off the entire tank. So a couple weeks ago, Jess and I made a decision. We have a nice tank at home, and we made the decision to convert it from plastic plants to real plants. And so that's a lot of work, and we were you know, researching and buying plants and adding sand and all that good stuff, and it was looking great. And, I, you know, I've been watching all these YouTube videos. And one of them said that your plants really need to have motion in the water. You need a wave maker. So a wave maker is a pump that you put inside the tank to <laughs> create waves. And it provides a current for the plants. And supposedly the fish are supposed to like it too. So I went online and I bought a wave maker. And I was all excited. It came a few days later. And I hooked it up. And the plug, you know, was hard to get in because of the way the tank is wired. But I stick the wave maker uh, in the tank, and I plug in the wave maker, and immediately realize that I had not read the specifications of the wave maker, because the wave maker I bought was designed for like SeaWorld, <laughs> 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 not not a 76-gallon tank. And so immediately. Uh, the tank turns into a maelstrom. It's like a, it's like a hurricane. I got plants flying everywhere. The rocks are falling over, and the fish are freaking out. I mean, they think that, you know, I've turned into a, a, a serial killer. And so the fish are doing these involuntary circles, you know, around the tank, and I have these beautiful angel fish, and they're, they're pretty big, and I swear. Uh, one of them in particular, as he was doing these laps around the tank, was, was glaring at me. I mean, he was, and I, and I swore he sort of mouthed the words, what are you doing? Yeah. So I got the uh, wave, maker, wave maker out of the tank and um, it took me about five minutes. The tank was a disaster. And then I went and bought another wave maker and uh, a week later um, had the same result. So I've now removed all the wave makers and was reminded that caretaking for God's creation is an enormous responsibility, and we need to be good stewards of what we're doing, but this concept of a maelstrom, of a hurricane, really does describe well the state of the union, if you will, in terms of the pro-life movement and the abortion movement in our culture. If you've been watching the news over the past, really, 
couple years since Trump got elected, you have both areas, the pro-abortion movement, becoming very visceral and very open about their pro-abortion views, and the pro-life movement moving aggressively to make as many gains as they can, certainly in the political realm. And that has created an enormous amount of tension. Uh, Human Coalition is now in its 11th year. We've never had a year like the last year or two that has been as animated, as vitriolic uh, from our enemies and from our adversaries as it has been. And I only think that's going to increase as we head into an election year. So my desire here is to give you a few encouraging words, a few apologetic words, a few things to empower you, to get you excited through the power of the Holy Spirit about engaging in the conversation about abortion because we need more and more of us to be winsomely but candidly addressing this because, as you well know, abortion is the leading cause of death in America, one million children a year, 3,000 a day, one in three deaths every day caused by abortion, Abortion is the leading surgical operation in our country. So the leading cause of death in America is the killing of our own children. And I'm going to try to describe to you today some of the things that we can do and the way that we can think in order to help resolve that. Because my passion, and I know it's yours as well, is to make abortion unthinkable and unavailable. So if you have your Bibles, we're just going to quickly look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is very familiar. I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, in biblical studies, when you see a word like therefore, it is a connector, it's a transition phrase, so we have to briefly ask ourselves, what is the therefore? Therefore. And uh, see how I did that? Apparently not. The word therefore is a transition between 11 chapters of awesome, amazing theology, Paul laying out the case for Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, and what it means for us and the world, and he is transitioning into practical application. What do we do with all this fantastic knowledge? And there's two very self-evident things. We present our bodies, a living and holy sacrifice, back to God, Christ died for us, and so we present ourselves back to him as a living sacrifice. I realize that some are martyred, but the vast majority of us spend our lives in service to Christ. James refers to himself as a bondservant of Christ. We are slaves. We are his property. We are now enrolled in his kingdom-making work. And so we are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God as a spiritual service of worship. Well, how do we do that? We do that by the transforming, the renewing of our minds, how we think, how we process the world around us so that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I think this is a powerful verse. This is sort of my life verse. Many of us have life verses. This is my verse. I meditate and think on it all the time because I'm enthralled by this concept of the renewing of the Christian mind according to God's will so that we can be put into proper service in his kingdom-building work. And it brings up the concept of worldview, and this is a fascinating topic that we've been studying, uh, Justin and I have been talking about, and the kids and we're going about to start a study on it ourselves at home. There's a guy in Dallas named Brandon Smeltzer. He teaches at a Christian school in the mid-city somewhere, and Brandon Smeltzer put together a 12-part series on worldview, which I found awesome and fascinating. And he said, every adult on the planet has a worldview. And a worldview is a set of beliefs, a set of assumptions by which we filter everything that happens in our world. 
And every adult has one, meaning we view relational situations, things on the media, television shows that we choose to watch, church, everything that we process through our brain is filtered through our worldview. We're conscious of it sometimes, most of the time we're not. But every adult on the planet has a worldview, and Brandon Smeltzer says, picture your worldview like a tree. The roots of your worldview are your theology. The trunk of your worldview is our philosophy, our view of what's true. And the branches of our tree are all the other ologies, and frankly, all the uh, effects of how we view things around us. So sociology, psychology, biology, politics, government, church leadership, all of those things flow from our view of truth, which is our trunk, which is rooted in our roots, which is our theology. So when somebody tries to tell me that abortion is a political issue, that's not correct because the politics are up here in the branches. And nothing originates in the branches. Abortion is a theological, it is a spiritual topic grounded in worldview. And I'm going to try, out to, try to lay out the case here briefly about how the Christian worldview, the Christ-centered worldview, is utterly distinct when it comes to the sacredness of human life from just about every other worldview on the planet. Okay? Every adult on the planet has a worldview. Every single adult's worldview is rooted in their theology. We do not live according to our worldview 100% of the time. That's not possible, and as a Christian, obviously, we sin. However, most of our decisions, most of our observations and assumptions and conclusions about the world are crafted and molded through our worldview. And I would argue that what Paul is saying in Romans 12, 2 is our worldview needs to be conformed to Christ and nothing else. And the Christian church in America today nationwide, is really struggling to conform its worldview, its perspective, to Christ, and instead is being corrupted and influenced by lots of other things. And you see that no more played out as distinctly as in the case of abortion. A few years ago, I was on a podcast called Think Human, and the podcast producers called me and they said, we would like to have a Christian pro-life advocate debate a Christian pro-abortion advocate on our podcast. So they said, we'd like you to be the pro-life Christian, and we found a, a woman, a priest, who would like to represent the pro-abortion Christian perspective. And so we debated for about an hour, and it was very civil, and it was very nice. She was a feminist Episcopal priest from up in the north somewhere, and her view was that abortion was necessary for women's health and was a reproductive right. And we got into the, the debate and she said, if life in the womb really is as precious and valuable as life outside the womb, which is the Christian worldview, she said, why is it that when an in vitro clinic in San Francisco had an issue with their technology and lost 2,000 embryos in the space of a few hours, where was the outrage from the public? Meaning we lost as many humans in that in vitro fertilization clinic disaster as almost as what we lost on 9-11. Where was the outpouring and the dismay at the loss of those lives? And she was arguing that as a Christian, it is okay for us to value human beings based on how we feel about them. 
that really is the underlying theological worldview of the abortion movement. And when I say the abortion movement, I'm not just talking about the women that are wearing vaginas at their head at the Women's March in Washington, D.C. I'm talking about anybody who isn't passionately pro-life. Because if you're not passionately pro-life, you are, you are pro-abortion. Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. So anybody that is not living out the pro-life worldview is de facto part of the abortion machine. And that machine says that we get to choose all sorts of different ways of devaluing human life. One of which is how we feel about them. Another way that we devalue human life is race. Gender. Location. Size. Age. Geography. Degree of dependency. Level of development. These all manifest themselves all the time in our culture. They are discriminating tactics employed against a people group who cannot speak for themselves or defend themselves. By the way, this talk track has played itself out for millennia. Humans in power always find very creative ways of discriminating and devaluing other human beings who don't have as much power. That's the problem with being human, is that we continue to devalue human beings that we wish to use for our own devices, and we get very creative at doing that. So if you've heard the argument that the abortion argument is about my body, my choice, well, you are discriminating against the preborn human being because you are not even recognizing that they also have a body. When we talk about women's rights, 50% of the human beings that are aborted every year are female. So we're not really talking about women's rights. We're talking about selective women's rights for one group of women, not another. We talk about viability. Well, the child is not valuable you know, before some point of viability. Well, that term is ambiguous. Why are we devaluing human beings based on their capacity to do something? Age. 85% of abortions happen in the first trimester. That's age discrimination. It's saying you are not as valuable because you're simply younger. The pro-life ethic says the zygote has the same extraordinary intrinsic value as you and I. And Christianity demands that we treat that zygote with the same respect, dignity, and protection as we would ourselves. My opponent in the debate was essentially saying, if our culture does not feel that human life is valuable, then that life is not valuable. And I realized at that point that we were not arguing from the same worldview. And the reason is that Christianity, true Christianity, biblical Christianity, says we are not given the right or the privilege of devaluing human beings at all, because our human value is not determined by us. Our value is determined by God because we are made in his image. And because we are made in his image, the right to determine value, life and death, is God's and God's alone. And innocent human life, therefore, should be protected from conception through natural death every time without exception. That is what makes the Christian worldview so incredibly unique. We don't assign our own value. Every other worldview says we can. Christianity says, no, that is God's right, and he has determined that because we are made in his image, each and every single human being, regardless of the circumstances of conception, is extraordinarily, intrinsically valuable. 
and therefore worthy of protection and honor and dignity. The Christian worldview is the most respectful, dignified, wholesome, holistic, healthy worldview on the planet, bar none. Primarily because of that fact that we are made in God's image and therefore we do not get the right to discriminate. And I was thinking about a few weeks ago, what we're really dealing with here, which I find kind of fascinating, is the pro-abortion worldview. Any worldview which says that we can take human beings and change their value is basically claiming their own divinity. The Christian worldview says God is all-powerful. He has the ability and the right to determine human value. The pro-abortion worldview says I get to choose who lives and who dies based on what I want. It's one worldview based on God versus another view based on tiny gods. Claims of self-divinity. If you listen really carefully to the press and the media around abortion, you will hear theology all over the place. Claims of autonomy, claims of power, claims of divinity. This is why, in my view, the Christian church in America, we no longer live in a day and age where we can kind of go about our business peaceably and go home and and sort of enjoy quiet lives. Those days are over. We live in a post-Christian era. We live in an environment of sexual chaos. And because of our love and compassion for those that are lost, we not only evangelize and share the gospel, we rescue because quite literally lives are at stake. We can't engage in that debate and that fight unless we first recognize what's going on theologically, and that is we are in a titanic clash between the Christian worldview which claims God and any other worldview which claims self-divinity. And until we learn how to deal with those sorts of issues at the theological roots, we're going to be left a little bit empty in the way that we engage. Which means there's a lot of nonsense and a lot of fluff going on in the conversation, but now we as sober-minded Christians should be able to clearly understand and quickly determine the self-divine claims of the theological worldview related to the pro-abortion movement. We hear it all the time. Human Coalition serves thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of women each and every year. And most of them, without even thinking about it, they're not conscious about it, are going to claim some level of self-divinity. It's not the right time for me to be pregnant. Well, let's assess that. From a Christian viewpoint, all life is sacred, regardless of the circumstances of conception, and God doesn't make mistakes. So maybe the circumstances of conception weren't planned from a worldly standpoint, but it wasn't some happenstance accident that God didn't know about. But from a secular standpoint, it makes sense for somebody who does not hold to God being the creator saying, yeah, this isn't the right time, so I'm going to kind of get rid of this problem and move on. If this sounds eerily familiar, it should. If we think that human beings have somehow evolved in our spiritual maturity, we need to go back into Genesis. You might remember the conversation in the garden when the serpent was tempting Eve. What did he say? For God knows that in the day you will eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Your what? Eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The original sin was the temptation to escape our humanity and declare our divinity. Abortion is simply a manifestation of that original temptation. Now what do we do with that? I'm going to give you four quick applications. 
four-click applications. We need to check our minds. We need to check our hearts. We need to check our facts. And we need to check our fears. We need to check our minds. Does our worldview related to the sacredness of human life truly align with God's word? I run into Christians all the time as I travel around the country who say, I'm pro-life, but. I'm pro-life, but. No, you aren't. The Protestant perspective is typically that the only time an abortion is warranted is when the life of the mother is legitimately at stake. I think there's an ethical response to that, which is that's not even an abortive procedure. Abortion is by design murderous and intent. The operation to save one life rather than losing two is not. And so I think the life of the mother is a, is a necessary exclusion from that conversation. Is the child fatally ill? Not cause for abortion. Is a child mentally or physically disabled? Not cause for abortion. Is the mom financially strapped? Not cause for abortion. There is no other reason. And we can't claim to be pro-life unless we're actually theologically pro-life. We need to check our minds, check our hearts. Patrick said it up front. This is an odd balance for a Christian. While we be uh, aggressive, candid, compassionate, winsome about ending abortion, there are probably some 60 million adults in the country who have had an abortion, most of them don't know that the, Christ, the cross of Christ is bigger than the sin of abortion. Many people who have had abortion think it's an unforgivable sin. There is probably no greater ministry opportunity for the church than to be the hands and feet of Christ, to express the forgiveness of Christ to those people and welcome them into our arms. Not just throwing aside the abortion and thinking it didn't exist, understanding the severity of that, but at the same time expressing the hope and forgiveness that can only come through Jesus Christ. I have met too many women and men who have suffered from abortions for decades without that knowledge, and their lives have been ruined. Drugs, alcohol, violence, multiple relationships, all kinds of nonsense result. When the human heart wrestles with the fact that a child was killed at somebody's decision, it has long-term debilitating con consequences. We as the church have the ability to address that, and we are the only ones on the planet who can address that through Jesus Christ. Amen? Check our minds, check our hearts, check our facts. There's a lot of nonsense out there. Just listen to any presidential debate about what abortion is and what about abortion isn't. Michelle Williams gave a very impassioned speech at whatever these goofy award ceremonies are, and she stands there pregnant and says she could not have the success she has if she hadn't aborted before that. And the culture says, oh, that makes sense. Makes total sense. We need to check our facts. Leading cause of death in America, a brutal surgical procedure, a fatally harmful chemical procedure, one that has taken the lives of 3,000 human beings a day who are equally valuable to you and me. Those are the facts. The abortion industry is not a bunch of medical personnel who are smiling and winsomely trying to take care of clients. It is a racist, greedy, narcissistic industry designed to make billions of dollars, primarily in minority communities, and they do so under the cover of medical care. We need to check our facts. Lastly, check our fears. Uh, most, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and I, I was asked to give a, a, a lecture on pro-life to a bunch of pastors. I guarantee you it'll be the last time they asked me back. Um, it was, uh, it, uh, one pastor said I felt like he had been taken to the woodshed. So, um, so I was fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys know my perspective on the modern American church and abortion. My um, conversation with one of them was that he said that his church was going to throw him out if he was ever to address abortion from the pulpit. So, one, we need to be grateful for a pastor and an elder 
uh, board that allows abortion to be not only talked about on this Sunday, but you hear it regularly in this church and how the church should be engaged and needs to be engaged, and you are practically engaged. This is not the norm. This is the vast exception to the rule. Most churches are either ignorant or scared to death. And so that pastor, as much as he was expressing his fears, lacked something that is lacking in most churches, which is courage. It takes courage to engage in the act of ending abortion, even if we don't feel like it. And many of us don't feel like it. It doesn't matter. The command of Scripture is clear. You can go to the Ten Commandments through Proverbs 24, 11, and 12, through all the passages in Amos on justice, through the New Testament. Rescuing human beings from injustice and death is a clear command of Scripture. It requires courage to do that. It requires discipline to do that. By God's grace, this church does it. But we need to be a city, shining city on a hill to other churches in Frisco and certainly churches in Dallas and around the country who are doing nothing. I've said multiple times from multiple pulpits all over the country, we can end abortion in America very quickly. We cannot do it without the church because the pro-life worldview is founded and grounded in Christianity. No other worldview has a reason to do it. And if the church doesn't do it, then we will continue to see abortion being the leading cause of death, not only in the country as it is, but it is worldwide killing some 44 to 50 million children a year worldwide. That's the task called before us. It is not the typical Christian call for evangelicalism that we have experienced in the last 50 years. But by God's grace, we will be the generation of Christians that rise up and say we will stand for preborn children that we can't see, that we can't hear, that few care about, that we may not feel emotionally connected to. But we acknowledge that God's value is the correct value for human beings, and we will align our thinking and renew our minds according to his valuation, not ours. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you came to earth not as a baby, but as a zygote, forever and ever theologically and practically proving that life in the womb has extraordinary intrinsic value. Lord, we are not divine, but we are hand-woven, beautiful creatures of the divine. We are men and women who have been handcrafted by a loving creator to do enormous, awesome, amazing things. Each one of us utterly in community, completely unique in all of human history. Recognizing, Father, that even we in the church at times get corrupted in our thinking and begin to wonder if certain classes of human beings are not really as valuable as others. May we be continually washed by your word May we be continually reminded that our worldviews are grounded in our theology and that our theology as Christ followers has to be rooted and grounded in Christ and in your word, even when it's unpopular, even when we're unsure, even when we don't want to be disliked. Father, help us instead live out the gospel through the act of rescuing human beings in the womb and their moms and dads so that we, in fact, might make abortion unthinkable and unavailable in our lifetime. To the glory of you and you alone, in Jesus' name, amen.